When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, A Cassus Belly Project. In this episode, we return to the Pacific Theater in earnest. Looking back to episode 30, the last time we discussed the Pacific, Guadalcanal had just been secured. With the island firmly in Allied hands, MacArthur and Halsey began setting the conditions for their continued drive northwest up the Solomon Chain and New Guinea. In this episode, we will discuss the intervening period between the seizure of Guadalcanal and the resumption of offensive actions in mid-1943, as well as the actions themselves, including the New Georgia Campaign and the advance on Ley in New Guinea. So let's begin episode 42, Vengeance in the Solomons. I have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? campaigns in the Lower Solomons in eastern New Guinea, MacArthur and Nimitz were prepared to continue their drives into Japanese territory. The two services represented by MacArthur and Nimitz had two different ideas about how to get to the Japanese home islands. MacArthur wanted to advance along the Solomons and the northern coast of New Guinea to prepare for an invasion of the Philippines and thence to Japan. Nimitz would take the Navy and Marine Corps through the Central Pacific along the Marshall, Caroline, and Marianas Islands after which he would strike at Nippon itself. In both cases, the American planners were faced with the prospect of invading and seizing countless islands, or at least that's what the Japanese had assumed. For the Japanese, each tiny spit of land had intrinsic value as something to be conquered. For the Allies, their value was incidental, or worth as much as it offered in getting them that much closer to defeating Japan. If a particular island or stronghold provided no strategic benefit from its seizure, then it would simply be left to wither on the vine, as they said. Thus, the island-hopping strategy was born. In early 1943, only the earliest of footholds had been established, but the Japanese were decidedly on the back foot after losing Guadalcanal. MacArthur's proximate objective was Rabaul, on the island of New Britain, the seat of the Japanese 8th Army. The plan to seize Rabaul was codenamed Operation Cartwheel, and involved a dual envelopment of the stronghold from the north and south. MacArthur would take the southern route, continuing along New Guinea, and Admiral Halsey, commander of the South Pacific area, would take the northern route along the remainder of the Solomon chain. Meanwhile, the Japanese were planning their defense of the islands. 
and overall command of the regional defense was General Hiroshi Imamura, with the 17th and 18th Armies at his disposal. The 17th Army area of responsibility encompassed the remainder of the Solomon chain, and the 18th would defend northern New Guinea. The 18th Army was newly assigned to the region, and thus was not yet in position in early 1943, and had to be convoyed in. General MacArthur's air commander, General George Kenney, sought to take advantage of that. The result was the Battle of the Bismarck Sea. General Kenney had arrived in theater only in August of 1942, but he was a leader in updating the Air Force's anti-ship tactics. He helped to end the practice of high-altitude bombing against surface vessels, and began training his air crews on low-altitude attacks utilizing machine guns, skip bombing, and massed height bombing. Skip bombing was exactly what it sounds like. Several hundred yards from their target, aircraft would release bombs which would skip along the water's surface like a stone, similar to methods used by the RAF against German dams in Europe. Mass type bombing was similar, except that the bombardier would release his bomb right at the exact moment that would cause the explosive to hit the target directly on the side of the hull. Key to these bombing techniques was neutralizing the defender's anti-air capability, which is where strafing runs came in. Fighters would come in fast and low to strafe the ships with the intent of destroying their AA guns. Kenny's men would get to test out their new techniques against the ships carrying the 51st Division and 18th Army from Rabaul to Ley in New Guinea. On February 28, 1943, the Japanese convoy departed Rabaul under the cover of tropical storms that were sweeping through the island chain. It consisted of eight transports and eight destroyers, carrying 6,900 men between them and escorted by 100 fighters. Their luck only held out for about two days before the storm clouds cleared and the skies became suitable for air operations on March 1st. General Kenny had 200 bombers and 150 fighters in New Guinea at his disposal, along with an additional 85 bombers and 95 fighters in Australia. So when the opportunity presented itself, he was ready to seize on it. As the clouds parted around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the convoy was spotted by a patrolling B-24 Liberator. Kenny, seeing his chance, leapt at it. The next morning, while waiting for scouts to regain contact with the convoy, he dispatched a flight of Australian A-20s to attack Ley in New Guinea in order to prevent them from sortieing to defend the convoy. When contact with the convoy was re-established by another patrolling liberator at about 10 a.m. on March 2nd, Kenny sent his first sortie against the convoy. The attacking force was composed of eight B-17s in the first wave and another 20 in the second. They soon found their targets where they engaged with Japanese fighters and dropped their payloads at the Japanese ships. The initial attack was a partial success. One transport ship was sunk with 1,200 soldiers aboard and two others were damaged, along with eight Japanese fighters knocked from the skies. In exchange, nine B-17s were damaged, but returned to their bases. Not a bad result for the initial run, but General Kenny was nowhere near done with the Japanese convoy. By the close of March 3rd, he would throw 350 aircraft at the convoy, sinking all the transports and half the destroyers. The effort was devastating to the Japanese plans to reinforce New Guinea from the Solomons. Only a fraction of the troops bound for Ley actually arrived, about 1,200 or so. About 2,700 men were fished from the waters of the Pacific to return to Rabaul, and 2,800 were lost at sea. Of all the aircraft launched by the Allies in the Battle of the Bismarck Sea, as it came to be known, only two bombers and four fighters were shot down, for a total loss of only 13 lives. An incredible exchange ratio that I think any commander would take. The catastrophic failure to reinforce New Guinea resulted in the Japanese significantly altering their procedures for sustaining the island. No longer would they dispatch convoys without air cover, and they would gradually transition to resupplying and reinforcing at night 
while hiding in the many coves and inlets during the day. This traffic was eventually intercepted and reduced to a trickle by indigenous coast watchers who reported Japanese movements to Allied command. Meanwhile, Admiral Yamamoto was planning retribution for the loss of Guadalcanal. Under the auspices of Operation Ego, he assembled a force of 350 aircraft, a veritable armada in 1943 terms, to sink American shipping supplying Guadalcanal and attrit her air forces. On April 7th, he saw his opportunity. A force of 25 vessels, including four cruisers, was steaming down Iron Bottom Bay, and Yamamoto believed it to be the ideal target. Coast watchers in New Guinea detected the strike force. Unable to count the vast number of aircraft flying overhead, they simply reported hundreds of aircraft inbound. Tulagi and Guadalcanal scrambled what fighters they could, but the combined force of Army, Navy, and Marine Corps aircraft totaled only 67. The Allied airmen put up stiff resistance, however. One rookie pilot, Marine Lieutenant Jimmy Sweat, shot down seven Japanese bombers, becoming an ace in one mission. For his exemplary performance, he was awarded the Medal of Honor, but he was far from the only pilot to go above and beyond that day. All over the Lower Solomons, pilots and AA gunners were adding to their kill counts. In all, 39 Japanese aircraft were shot down for a loss of seven Allied aircraft, with all pilots recovered. The Japanese only managed to sink one destroyer, one tanker, one corvette, and two Dutch transports, but they reported much greater success. Japanese air crews exaggerated their successes to their superiors, who in turn embellished on those reports until they reached Yamamoto, who was told there had been a massive victory in the Solomons. Believing his men had achieved an overwhelming victory, he canceled follow-on strikes and planned a visit to Bougainville in order to encourage his men after their recent successes. News of the Admiral's imminent arrival was transmitted to Rabaul, and considering American signalmen had long ago cracked Japanese naval codes, this proved to be a disastrous decision. When Nimitz was made aware of Yamamoto's travel to New Britain by air, he decided they should try to get him, initiating Operation Vengeance. The air commander for the Solomons area gave the assignment to the 339th Fighter Squadron equipped with P-38 Lightnings, the longest-range fighters available. On the morning of April 18th, Yamamoto was scheduled to fly from Rabaul to Kahili Airfield on Bougainville. His air escort consisted of two Betty bombers and nine Zeros. With him were his chief of staff and several other key staff members. That same morning, 16 P-38s rose from Henderson Field on Guadalcanal to intercept the Admiral. Just as the Bettys were descending into the airfield, the P-38s ambushed them from higher altitude, sending the two bombers down almost immediately. One went crashing into the jungle, and the other careening into the bay. Three of the Zeros were shot down as well. The mission was a resounding success. The architect of Pearl Harbor and the finest mind in the Japanese military was dead. But the Americans stayed mum. They could not risk revealing that they had cracked the Japanese code. On May 21st, the Japanese publicly announced that Yamamoto was dead. The first half of 1943 was a relatively quiet period in the Southwest Pacific, at least as far as land operations go. After the end of the Battle of Guadalcanal, MacArthur and Halsey began setting the conditions for their continued advance on Rabaul. Additionally, operations in North Africa were soaking up the Navy's ability to conduct amphibious landings and sustain overseas forces. The only large maneuver was the seizure of the Russell Islands between Guadalcanal and the New Georgia Islands. However, these landings were unopposed because the Japanese had abandoned the Russells shortly after the fall of Guadalcanal. By May, however, resources were beginning to flow back to the Pacific, along with new equipment and weapons. The Pacific Campaign was conceptually divided into three phases. 
The first phase was characterized by the strategic defensive in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. The second phase was the effort to seize the initiative in Guadalcanal. Finally, the third phase, strategic offensive, in which the Allies drove the Japanese back to the home islands. The Solomons campaign beyond Guadalcanal represented the first actions in the third phase. Thus, men and equipment were beginning to flow into the southwest Pacific to carry that offensive forward. New landing craft were arriving in the theater. No longer would the Marines be forced to leap from the sides of the old LCPL, or Landing Craft Personnel Light. Higgins boats, officially known as LCVPs, or Landing Craft Vehicle Personnel, had finally arrived in the Pacific after seeing extensive use in the Mediterranean. New versions of the amphibious tracked landing vehicle, or simply the Amtrak, were arriving as well. Though very useful for navigating up small waterways and crossing streams, the older versions were susceptible to corrosion. The new alligators, as they were affectionately known on Guadalcanal, were salt-resistant and featured a rear-facing ramp. The new M1 Garand semi-automatic rifle had also begun to arrive to replace the Springfield rifles. Though warily accepted at first by the old salts for being less accurate and less durable, the rifle quickly won over its detractors. Its relatively rapid-firing capability soon proved its usefulness. Bazookas were also arriving to help supplement the infantryman's tool bag. Named for a comical instrument used by comedian Bob Burns, it gave individual riflemen at least a basic anti-armor capability. Finally, flamethrowers were also beginning to be employed. They would prove quite useful in rooting out Japanese defenders from even the most stubborn positions. Rations too were changing in the early part of the war. The old sea rations consisting of meat mixed with beans or vegetables sealed in a can were replaced with a 10-in-1 ration. These proved quite popular. They could contain various meats, spam, bacon, cheese, cigarettes, and tea or coffee. Though they provided more variety and included some sought-after commodities, they weren't as calorie-dense. New aircraft were being fielded for the Air Forces as well. As mentioned already, the new P-38 Lightning Heavy Fighter had begun operating the Pacific with the Army Air Corps. The Lightning was a unique aircraft, if anything. Its distinctive twin-engine design inspired its German nickname, Der Gablerschwanzteufel, or the Fork-Tailed Devil. Personally, I always thought it was a bit of an ugly baby but performance-wise, it was formidable. Propelled by twin supercharged engines, it could propel itself to 400 miles per hour, and it could climb 3,300 feet a minute, and boasted a 1,150-mile range. For armament, it carried quad 50-caliber machine guns, alongside a 20-millimeter cannon, making it capable of taking down even the toughest targets, including enemy bombers, tanks, and warships. Over 10,000 P-38s would be produced during the war, and perhaps surprisingly, they would score more kills against Japanese aircraft than any other fighter in the Allied arsenal. For the Navy and Marine Corps, the Corsair was the new aircraft to begin showing up on flight decks and airfields. The F-4U Corsair, known for its distinctive reverse gull-wing design, was intended to be a carrier-based aircraft, but due to some ungainly characteristics, naval aviators never took to it. Marine aviators, on the other hand, loved it. It had a relatively high top speed of 400 miles per hour, and had a reputation for ruggedness, allowing it to survive in the relatively difficult conditions it faced in the southwest Pacific. The Corsair would rack up over 2,000 kills throughout the war, and serve as the workhorse for some of the most famous squadrons to survive in the Pacific, including Major Pappy Boyington's Black Sheep Squadron. Boyington, nicknamed Pappy because at 31 he was already an old man by the reckoning of his men, was already a veteran by the start of the war. Before America entered the war, he left the Marines to go serve with the Flying Tigers in China, 
where he shot down at least two, but as many as six Japanese aircraft. After Pearl Harbor, he returned to the United States and attempted to get his commission reinstated. The Marines, believing he had left the service in a time of crisis, denied his petition, so he went to work as a valet in Seattle. He didn't give up, though, and continued to pester the Department of the Navy until they let him back in. Having been allowed back in the Marines, he was given the rank of Major, despite leaving as a First Lieutenant only a year earlier. His first assignment after returning was to Guadalcanal, as the XO for the 122nd Attack Squadron. It wasn't long before he received his own command, however. First, he was given the 112th Attack Squadron from July to August 1943, and subsequently, his most famous command, the 214 Marine Fighter Squadron, otherwise known as the Black Sheep. Without Boyington, there would have been no Black Sheep Squadron. They were a mishmash of pilots thrown into the Solomons individually, so when Boyington effectively organized them, the Marines more or less let him have them and legitimized the organization. After turning his band of misfits and stragglers into a bona fide fighter squadron, Boyington had just about three weeks at Espiritu Santo to train them and turn them into a real fighting outfit. On September 16th, Boyington got his first opportunity to show whether he deserved his command when the squadron was assigned to escort a bomber formation over Bougainville. While on mission, they were ambushed by as many as 40 Zeros and successfully fought them off. Boyington shot down five of them himself. He was already an ace on his first mission. Boyington and the Black Sheep would wreak havoc across the Solomons for five months and score 22 kills before he was shot down over Robal and captured. For his incredible performance, Boyington was awarded the Medal of Honor. Having set the conditions to continue the drive in Robal in the first half of 1943, MacArthur and Halsey were ready to resume the campaign. It would last months and was characterized by flurries of amphibious landings, independent maneuvers, and small naval battles throughout the Solomon's chain and coast of New Guinea. On the morning of June 30th, the campaign would begin in earnest when 6,000 soldiers and marines of Halsey's Amphibious Force 3 landed to seize the New Georgia Islands, consisting of New Georgia itself, Rendova, and Vangunu. The primary objective of the operation was to capture the airfield at Munda Point on the western tip of New Georgia to be taken by the 43rd Infantry Division. A smaller force of two Army and one Marine Raider Battalion, under Marine Colonel Harry Liversedge, landed on the northern coast at Rice Anchorage to block Japanese reinforcements arriving from Kolombangra, about 10 miles away on the other side of the Kula Gulf. The Japanese did not simply yield the seaways to the American Navy, however, and engaged American vessels when they felt they had the advantage. As was the case throughout the early part of the war, the American radar advantage was neutralized by Japanese long-lance torpedoes. American radar was often able to detect the Japanese early, conferring an advantage especially at night, allowing them to deliver painful and accurate main battery fire. However, spreads of Japanese torpedoes often found the bottoms of American hulls, making naval engagements deadly and chaotic. After landing, Liversedge's marines proceeded to establish their blocking position, but were thwarted by the dense jungle and rugged terrain. Despite the marines occupying the primary trail from Rice Anchorage, the Japanese were able to bypass them through small jungle trails and landing south of their position at Bairoko Harbor. This would complicate an already precarious situation in the south, where the 43rd ID was encountering difficulty in their advance from Zanana toward Munda. A combination of stiff Japanese resistance and their own inexperience contributed to the 43rd's lumbering progress through New Georgia. Though they had been in the South Pacific since October of 1942, they had yet to see any actual combat at all, so when one of their battalions ran into a Japanese platoon defending the road to Munda, 
it was held up for two days. The 169th Infantry Regiment would act as the spearhead, driving directly for Munda, but it was quickly stymied. In an effort to break through the Japanese outer defenses, General Hester, commander of the 43rd ID, sent the 172nd Infantry on a more northern route, but this force too was blocked by the Japanese. By July 8th, the advance had effectively been halted. The Japanese usual methods of terrifying their opponents by screaming in the night and conducting infiltrations worked the 43rd over mercilessly. The men of the 43rd would fire wildly into the darkness and toss grenades at phantoms, injuring and killing their fellow soldiers as often as the Japanese. General Sasaki, commander of the Japanese troops in New Georgia, also initiated a counterattack which nearly overran the 43rd Division's command post. Soon, despite only participating in light engagements, men began streaming to the rear with symptoms of battle fatigue. The division's poor performance did not inspire confidence in its corps commander, Lieutenant General Oscar Griswold, who informed Halsey that the 43rd ID was on the verge of collapse. Halsey took the news seriously and relieved Hester of overall command of the operation, leaving him only the 43rd ID to worry about. In his place, General Griswold commanded all forces in New Georgia on July 15th. Griswold made the determination that more forces would need to be committed to the battle, so sent elements of the 37th and 25th Infantry Divisions. Having repulsed Sasaki's counterattack, the Japanese seemed to have lost much of their tenacity, and with the addition of more men, the tempo increased markedly. Liberal application of air and artillery support, as well as 81mm mortars and marine flame tanks, also helped beat back the Japanese. By August 5th, Munda Airfield was in Allied hands. Despite losing the island, General Sasaki had managed to withdraw most of his troops to Kalambangra rather than lose them in a doomed defense. Instead, he hoped to retake the island along with its airfield. On the night of August 6th, he dispatched four destroyers laden with 900 troops into the Vela Gulf. The Japanese flotilla was soon picked up on radar by an American force of six destroyers under Commander Frederick Moosebrugger. Having 20,000 yards to maneuver with at night, Moosebrugger was able to close the distance with the Japanese undetected and unleashed a spread of torpedoes at 6,300 yards. The torpedoes struck home. The Kawakazi exploded and was destroyed almost instantly. The Hawakazi and Arashi were both severely damaged and disabled, to be finished off by the 5-inch guns of the American destroyers. Only one Japanese vessel, the Shigure, escaped, but it had not been ferrying any troops. With his hopes of retaking New Georgia dashed, the island was completely secure by August 25th, and the operation was concluded. With New Georgia firmly in Allied hands, Kalambangra and Vela Lavella were the next two obvious objectives up the chain. General Sasaki still had tens of thousands of troops on Kalambangra, and the island offered very little in the way of operational advantage, so General Griswold elected to simply bypass it. The seizure of Vela Lavella was composed mostly of the 35th Infantry Combat Team of the 25th Infantry Division. The invasion was a complete success, and the island was seized for minimal losses, mostly because General Sasaki had chosen to withdraw the balance of his forces from the island, much of which were lost in naval action that sent much of the withdrawing force to the bottom. The new Georgia operation exceeded its expectations. The airfield at Munda proved to be even more useful than anticipated due to the layout of the terrain and the quality of the coral on which it was built. After its capture, the Allies were able to put it back into action against the Japanese almost immediately, and even expanded it to be able to host all types of aircraft. Additionally, the 8th New Zealand Brigade was able to seize the Treasury Islands for minimal casualties, thereby claiming the Allies' furthest point along the Solomon's chain. The result 
was not only were the Japanese eliminated from the entire New Georgia archipelago, but also that four new airfields were added by mid-September within 500 miles of Rebel and only about 200 miles from Bougainville. Of course, New Georgia was not the ultimate objective of Operation Cartwheel, but only a stepping stone to the ultimate goal of isolating Rebel, so Allied commanders began to set their sights on the next intermediate objective, Bougainville. Allied planners decided to divide the island in half operationally, and to focus on reducing and securing the southern half by the end of 1943. The Southwest Pacific Group considered bypassing Bougainville entirely, but ultimately concluded that the airfields in the Shortland, Belail, and Buen Faisi areas were far too critical to allow the Japanese continued use of them. Meanwhile, MacArthur was continuing his own drive northwest towards Rabaul along the coast of New Guinea. Having secured Boon and Gona, his next step was to capture Ley and Salamawa, about 165 miles further up the coast. To accomplish this, he initiated a pincer movement against Ley. American forces would land along the coast to pressure Salamawa, forcing the Japanese defenders to flex support to the garrison, thereby weakening the defense of Ley itself. Concurrently, Australian forces advanced along the interior route. MacArthur's Alamo force had little experience and fewer resources to conduct amphibious operations, however. In their first thrust towards Ley at Nassau Bay, a small objective en route to Salamawa, 18 landing craft were lost to land a single battalion against negligible defenses. Nevertheless, Nassau Bay was secured and used as a staging base for subsequent thrusts up the coast. The pressure exerted by the coastal advance was complemented by the Australian 15th Brigade advancing inland from Wau, about 30 miles inland from Salamawa. Unfortunately, New Guinea's rough terrain severely impeded the Australians. The completely restricted terrain essentially forced them to utilize the few trails, which constituted the only ground lines of communication towards the coast, making their movements easily predictable to the Japanese, and thus easy to defend against. The Japanese established defensive positions along these approaches, turning the Australians' advance into a 75-day ordeal, characterized by jungle knife fights and constant ambushes in the dense vegetation. The casualty numbers reflect the brutal nature of the war in the South Pacific. Typically, Artillery is the principal means of killing the enemy. However, in the Southwest Pacific, small arms were the king of battle, and inflicted a third of casualties, and artillery only 17%. This was in stark contrast to the European theater, where artillery accounted for 57% of casualties, and small arms only 20%. The ground campaign did not go unsupported. General Kenny was conducting his own campaign to support the capture of Ley. In order to strike the major Japanese airbase at Wewak, he had an entire airbase built in secret only 60 miles southeast of the Japanese at Seasley. From there, he was able to launch a devastating raid in August that resulted in roughly 125 Japanese aircraft destroyed on the ground in two days. That constituted three-quarters of the aircraft of the Japanese 4th Air Army and left the defenders vulnerable to further aerial attack, which MacArthur would fully leverage to his advantage. With Ley and Salamala isolated and weakened, the Allies closed the trap. From September 4th to 6th, the Australian 9th Division and 2nd Special Engineer Brigade landed 18 miles east of Ley, placing 7,800 troops on the Japanese doorstep. This was accompanied by the first Allied American combat parachute jump of the war, when the 503rd Parachute Infantry Regiment was dropped at Nadzap. The paratroopers met no opposition and secured their landing with ease, allowing a fleet of hundreds of C-47s to ferry in the entire Australian 7th Division. General Adachi, now had two whole divisions threatening his positions, and so decided to withdraw the bulk of his force to Finschhafen, 
due east at the tip of the Huon Peninsula. 8,000 Japanese soldiers made the trek, and a quarter of them died on the way through the dense mountain trails. By September 16th, both Ley and Salomala had fallen to the Allies, but MacArthur's work wasn't quite finished. He still needed to take Finchhofen in order to secure the route to New Britain. On September 22nd, the Australian 9th Division landed in the port, but met little immediate resistance. The Japanese had dug in on the ridgeline above the town. The effort to root out the Japanese in the vicinity of Finchhofen developed into a weeks-long slog that wasn't fully resolved until the end of November, but the job was done. With New Georgia and the tale of New Guinea firmly in Allied hands by the end of 1943, the conditions were set to begin the next phase of the Solomons campaign. In MacArthur's area, General Walter Kruger, not to be confused with the SS officer of the same name, was preparing an amphibious task force to invade New Britain itself. In Halsey's sector, the One Marine Amphibious Corps was preparing to invade Bougainville. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.